So the title of the retreat that we're all attending is Attitude and Awareness, Insight and Integration. So I thought I ought to speak about that tonight just to uh, put what we're doing here into a larger context. Sometimes, especially on the first day of a retreat, what we're actually experiencing with all of our efforting doesn't sound like the description of the course I signed up for, you know. And uh, so I just want to reassure you that, yes, we're on the right track. Yes, today's efforts and experiences are all part of the journey. And I hope to uh, uh, reframe your understanding of what your experience was today, maybe, and uh, encourage you to uh, hang in there. Mahasi Sayadaw is one of the uh, monks in Burma in the middle of the last century who is really considered one of the, the grandfathers of this whole tradition of practice. And he was the teacher of uh, Anagarika Manindra, who was the teacher of Joseph Sharon Deepama, the Burmese, the uh, Bengali Indian lady, and a lot of us, because he came here in 79, I believe. And <clears throat> he was uh, distinctive in his uh, uh, scholarship and his method of practice, and it has been adapted for uh, this retreat, and the instru his instructions also are primarily uh, what we build on in all of these kinds of retreats here in the West. So he says in his book, The Manual of Insight, according to the Buddhist teachings, the practice of insight, or vipassana, enables one to realize the ultimate nature of the body and the mind, to see their common characteristics, and to realize the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are the, uh, we'd have to say, the bedrock of uh, the Buddhist teachings, and they're uh, truths that all Buddhist traditions and sects and lineages rely on, refer to, and develop their own techniques and trainings upon. So what Mahasi Sayadaw is saying is that when we practice insight, which is mindfulness for the development of understanding, and that's what we're doing here, we're developing uh, mindfulness for the purpose of insightful understanding. We can develop mindfulness for the practice of uh, loving kindness or compassion um, in some of the secular approaches or uses of mindfulness are for stress management or relapse prevention for depression and uh, treating addiction and there's lots of uses or ways that mindfulness is skillfully used but insight practice vipassana is specifically using uh, mindfulness for the development of insightful understanding that helps us to realize the Four Noble Truths. And if you remember, I'll remind you even if you don't, the Four Noble Truths, uh, the, the first Noble Truth is that there's suffering. 
their suffering in life. It's a fact. I call uh, the Four Noble Truths the mature version of the facts of life because they're suffering in life. And uh, to, to acknowledge that takes some maturity, uh, not just chronological age, but I mean truly seeing this is the way it is. And the Buddha said that this the dukkha or suffering is caused by craving, clinging, holding on, um, pursuing that which just is unable to provide security and satisfaction. Now, when we hear these two noble truths, we think, oh, yeah, right, I got it. <laughs> I realized the first noble truth, second noble truth, that's pretty good. And we kind of overlook the third noble truth, which says, or states, that there is an end to this dukkha. And that's what we're practicing insight for, is to bring us closer to the understanding that this dukkha that we experience, the suffering that we experience, can be can be brought to an end. And the way to do that is the Fourth Noble Truth, or the uh, Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path, the three trainings of the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, when I talk about dukkha and suffering, I want to be really clear with you that I'm not talking about um, starvation in Bangladesh. I'm not talking about the wars in the Middle East or Asia or Africa. I'm not talking about the abuse of women exclusively in all over the world. I'm not talking about racial discrimination, although that's also included. I'm talking about the kind of suffering that you experience today. Impatience, self-judgment, anxiety, doubt, confusion, restlessness, angst, we might not think of them as, as, as suffering because we're so used to them. We've lived with them so long, we take them for granted as if this is just part of being human. Well, it is for ordinary human. But if you want to practice insight, the promise is that insight will lead to the end of this kind of suffering. Now, we can reflect on that and we might be quite skeptical and think, is that possible? Do I know anyone? Do I know anyone? Do you know anyone that has no anxiety, no fear, no restlessness, no impatience? Well, we know that there are those among us who have less of all of them. And so we can see that this is the direction that practice leads us. You know, if we can see the transformation or the subtle changes that occur in a week-long retreat or a nine-day retreat like this, imagine practicing like this or uh, in this way for the rest of your life. You can see the direction the mind goes. So let's not um, dismiss uh, out of hand the possibility that these forms of suffering can indeed be brought to, a, to an end. And it is important that we have this understanding in as we begin our practice because practice is not easy i think you'll agree right <laughs> practice is not easy it may be simple just be aware of the present moment what's so difficult about that i can tell my <laughs> little granddaughters just be aware of the present moment okay okay they get it but can we do it <laughs> it's not that it's difficult it's to do it's hard to remember to do. 
But anyway, uh, what I want to talk about is the possibility. I want to remind you that underneath all of this effort is an aspiration. Maybe you haven't articulated it for yourself so well, uh, but uh, you can, if you know about it, that there's this aspiration to be free of suffering. Why are you here? What'd you come for? You know, when you think about that, there's some, there's some discontentment, there's some things could be better, there's some, you know, that attitude of mine, whatever that is. Okay. Because of that, we're looking for something else in life, you know? And rather than looking for more of uh, entertainment and distraction and things to buy and uh, people to become <laughs> and something to learn and your bucket list to complete and all that, it's almost like we're looking for none of that. Which is something like, uh, you know, uh, simplifying or uh, downsizing or uh, emptying out your closet so that you can have something you didn't have before, which is empty space. So there's a place in practice where we come upon this place of empty fulfillment, where we really feel content, we really feel full, we feel nourished, we feel um, full of life with nothing in particular. That's the direction this practice can take us. But it's through practicing mindful awareness and just noticing what you're noticing. And in time, the understanding grows that will lead to this realization. So Mahasasayadar, again, he encourages us in his uh, admonition. Well, I've translated admonition as encouraging counsel. Admonition sounds a little bit like finger wagging, you know? I'm going to admonish you, but really it's quite encouraging when he says, let there be only a few things that you attend to, a few words that you say, and a few hours that you spend sleeping. Love solitude. Be willing to learn. And seek good friends. These are the six factors contributing to good dhammas. First, let me explain what good dhammas are. When we, uh, in our normal everyday life, move around in the world seeking what will bring us happiness, we mostly seek pleasure. We seek pleasure because we uh, are trying to avoid pain, trying to avoid that first noble truth as much as possible. And because of this desire, we seek pleasure. But what we're seeking here is different. There still is a seeking element to our practice here. But it's the seeking of faith, the seeking of confidence. We have some faith in this practice. We have some confidence in um, our experience or what we've read about the Buddhist teachings or what we've read about mindfulness. We have some faith or confidence or trust or maybe curiosity. And faith like that <coughs> seeks the good, the wholesome within ourselves within others, so that while there is a seeking, we can't really call it desire, because the, the experience of seeking wholesomeness within yourself is such a different, 
completely different experience than seeking pleasure through consumption, distraction, pursuit. And so it's the uh, awareness of the possibility of this wholesomeness within ourselves that we seek, that we aspire to, that we have some sense of uh, a possibility uh, within ourselves that is really the good dhammas that we seek. So when Mahasi Sayadaw says that uh, let there be a few things that you attend to, well, certainly when we come on retreat, we live very simply. You know, when we come here, we have two things to do. Be aware and a yogi job. That's it. Occasionally, you'll have to fill your water bottle too. But other than that, there really is not much to do. And you notice how hard that is? How hard it is to be satisfied with not doing much? We really like to be distracted. We're so used to being distracted. We're so used to having a to-do list that never ends. And it's already over here. There's no to-do list. That's it. Imagine. This is what it's like if you could ever finish your to-do list. Like being on retreat your whole life. (laughs) I'm not sure that's so desirable. But nevertheless, here we are. We have this opportunity. So to live, to live simp- simply is not easy. This we need to acknowledge. Uh, it's not easy because we don't have our usual distractions, our usual habits and activities. And then he says to let there be just a few words that you say or text or email or write or read, <coughs> I might add, <coughs> Because when we fill our minds with words, we get very far away from our experience. A lot of words don't turn you towards your experience, encouraging you to be aware, but they take you away from your experience into some fantasy land, some possibility, some imagined future, some uh, political rant, uh, some judgment of others, ruminating about the past, reaffirming uh, painful experiences in our life, uh, designing, scheming, strategizing how to get what we want. And we're far away from the present moment in that absorption into the world of words. I'm not saying that words are bad or that thinking's bad. I'm just saying that a lot of the unconscious, restless habits of the mind don't lead to happiness. Yeah, they lead to entanglement, they lead to more anxiety, more fear, more uh, apprehension, depression. Um, <clears throat> and then he says, let there be a few hours that you spend sleeping. Now, what he, he does, he's not saying work yourself to the bone so that you're so tired you can't sleep. <coughs> he's actually saying, uh, don't be lazy. Now we're here and most of us, as we acknowledged last night or this morning, is really are living a very overextended life and we arrive here depleted and in the first couple of days mostly we need to rest you know so if you took a nap today that's that's the practice for the day you know rest recover recharge your batteries let your mind refresh itself let your body relax and when you do you'll feel just how tired you are how tired the body is how tired the mind is and so it needs to well rest 
But we came here, we have just nine days to accomplish everything we're going to accomplish. I hope you don't plan to accomplish anything. And if so, you're done. Now you can just enjoy being here. Because, you know, if we have this attitude that I only got nine days, I better get on with it. And you start just kind of squeezing the mind into some mold of what you think you're supposed to be doing here and trying to make something special happen. Remember that first noble truth. Suffering caused by craving. That's what you'll feel. Craving leads to suffering. If you have some idea of what you want to get, what you want to do, and you're holding on to that now, you'll suffer. I'm not telling you that it'll happen. That's the way it is. You'll see for yourself. But to when he says to let there be only a few hours that you spend sleeping, he's really talking about being patient with the way things are. Being patient. The body's tired. The mind is tired. And we want to get the most we can out of the retreat. But we have to use a, We have to do that with some wisdom, not by striving. Then he goes on to say, love solitude. This isn't really an encouragement to, to isolate yourself or to stay in your room uh, or to uh, feel lonely, but it's to enjoy being within yourself, to have the ability to be within yourself, where you're not out engaging with the world, others, or whether it's the animate or the inanimate other out there. Uh, But we can be quite at ease, at home, comfortable, just in being within our own body and within our own mind, uh, not needing to perform, not needing to measure what we're doing, not needing to accomplish anything, but just to be at ease in the simplicity and the solitude of stillness. You know, that's why there's nothing to do here but be aware. Yeah, there's, there's some things that you have to do, eat and get up and come to the instructions and the Dharma talks and things like that. But don't let that ruffle your solitude. Just let it be part of the solitude of your day. And then he used this word, be docile. And I always thought docile meant being something like a cow. Just kind of like chewing your cud in the field, just kind of kind of numbly content. But that's not what docile means at all. Docile means being willing to be taught. Being willing to have, uh, to, to receive instruction and to take it in and to recognize that it might be of value to you and to apply it in your life. Now the teachings that we're going to be offering here are primarily from the Buddhist teachings. We might use some core supplemental uh, sources, but primarily from the Buddhist teachings uh, in, in all the different traditions that we've practiced in. And so you can have some assurance that we're not going to lead you too far astray, too far off the teachings of the Buddha. But to be willing to learn really means to be willing to learn about yourself. To be willing willing to learn about the most ordinary, mundane uh, experience of being a human being. You know, we all have been born into this world and we've been brought up by our parents and in a culture and in society and a family and a town, 
within this political system, this economic system, this educational system, with the available religions to us, and we're heavily conditioned by it all. We have layers and layers and layers of beliefs and assumptions about the way it's supposed to be for me and for you, for all of us, that we've never really seen and certainly don't know if they're true. And so a large part of this path of awakening to the truth of being a human being, what it means to be a human being, is awakening to our own false assumptions, wrong beliefs, mistaken ideas about who we are, how we are, what should be, how it is, and how things have come to be this way. We have a ready-made ready smorgasbord of views and opinions that we've inherited from others. And there are a lot of pundits out there willing to sell you more. The only way you're going to discover them and to discover your own is to enjoy solitude. Observe your own very, very ordinary and mundane experiences of this body and this mind. This is the way, this is the path, this is the key to awakening to the truth, to the truth of how it really is for you. And if you know how it really is for you, you know how it really is for everyone. So what we're talking about is not this learning from a book, necessarily. If the book is teaching you how to awaken and how to be awake and how to practice, that can be useful. But we're not looking to absorb more knowledge so much as instruction, being willing to learn. And so a large part of our lifestyle here on retreat, as you know, it's uh, sitting and walking, uh, eating, bathing, doing a yogi job. That's about it. And you're going to do it every day, over and over again. That's it. So we want to be willing to learn from the most ordinary, repetitive, recurring, familiar, nothing special, mundane events, like brushing your teeth, going to the toilet, standing in the lunch line again. Because that's where we really can begin to see through the uh, smokescreen of our wants, desires, beliefs, assumptions, and really experience, this is, this, is, this is the way it really is. When I'm standing here waiting for lunch, this is what it's really like. Okay. And while that may seem like uh, insignificant or what's, what's so revelatory about that or what's so enlightening about that or where, where is this ever mentioned in anybody's you know, spiritual book? It isn't, but this is your book. This is the book of your heart. What's going on when you stand in line? What's going on when you uh, come in to sit down or walk? And so this is, this is really where the learning takes place, being willing to learn about yourself. We're going to say some interesting things. You might even learn something about us, but that's not the interesting, that's not the work here. Real work is learning about yourself, being willing to, to confront your fears, your anxieties, your aspirations, your ambitions, your joys, what you think is bringing you joy, your sorrows.
Because as we learn about how that really is for us, we can decide for ourselves whether it's uh, worth pursuing or not, whether it's something to abandon, to let go of, whether it's something to uh, capitalize on or keep in our heart and mind or not. But if we don't know what's in here, we can't do anything with it except act it out. And we know how we act out. We don't always act out with the most skill and care and concern for ourselves or others. You know, that causes pain, that causes suffering to ourselves and others. And so until we understand why we do that, how we do that, how we let ourselves, how we're obsessed about something, then we'll suffer. And this practice is to understand why we do that. Trungpa Rinpoche was a Tibetan teacher back when this whole current phase of Dharma back in the mid-70s kind of got inflamed here in the West. And he said, you know, and he, and he taught, you know, high Dharma from the Tibetan tradition. He was, he was an extraordinary teacher and he was quite accomplished himself. He had, he had his own limitations, but nevertheless, he could really point to, you know, the essence of the Dharma. But he said, you know, if you really want to, if you really want to practice a Dharma, Try to understand why you put your hands in your pocket. Really. Why do you put your hands in your pocket? What's going on inside your mind, your heart, that, that makes you do such a simple thing unconsciously? So there's a lot of time, I, maybe you don't have pockets, you know, <laughs> but why, why do you swing your hands the way you do? You know, why do you look at the bulletin board every time you go by it? Why do you always reach for the doorknob with the left hand instead of the right? Why do you put the left shoe on before the right foot, right shoe, or the right instead of the left? Why? Well, to know, you really have to pay attention. That's what we'll be doing here, just paying that kind of attention. Now you can see, the way I'm talking about these experiences is, it's not like you've got to focus on anything. You don't have to kind of squeeze your mind into some little experience at the tip of your nose to be aware of that. You kind of just got to be just kind of easefully present with the way things are moment to moment. <clears throat> be willing to learn and seek good friends. Now here, here's Massey Seiler saying, love solitude, seek good friends. Sounds a little, you know, kind of counterintuitive, a little oxymoronic, a little, can you do both at once? Yes, we can. And here we are. Sitting among, practicing among really good friends, people who have the same aspiration, people who have the same sincerity, the same understandings, the, the, at least the movement towards this awakening that you do. I mean, we're all here for the same reason. We want to suffer less, you know, and you can put it in any other language you want. And we're all sincere. This is not for the faint of heart. You know, those people select themselves out of retreats. They, they don't come because it's not easy. It's, it's not easy for me. Is it easy for you? No. Okay. But good friends, you know, when you think of the, the, the work you've done on your spiritual journey and uh, the challenges that you've faced and how, how, how difficult it is to hear the teachings, let alone understand them, practice them, and not get kind of wigged out by it, how could we ever do that without a good spiritual friend? We wouldn't do it. 
even if we could understand it, you know, and know what needs to be done, we would be, you just wouldn't do it. It's just, it's too hard. It's too isolating. It's too lonely. It's too, you know, it's a too, too much of a burden. We wouldn't do it. That's why we have these retreats, so we can gather together periodically, get the support of one another, like-minded, and really uh, see that we're not alone in the world. We're not alone in this wish. We're not alone in this journey. We each have to do our own work. That's true. And we can do it together. So this is Mahasi Sayadaw's way of encouraging us, or just part of his encouraging us to undertake this kind of practice, uh, understanding the aspiration, the goal, and really how to, some, of the, some of the conditions, some of our behavior, some of our practices that allow us to be here and benefit from our practice. Sayadaw Tejaniya, another uh, Burmese monk that uh, I've been practicing with and Mark's been practicing with, I think Deborah's had been studying anyway, um, contemporary. He says, right attitude, this right attitude towards practice, the, the, the way that we practice, allows you to accept, acknowledge, and observe whatever is happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, in a relaxed, alert way. Let me repeat that. The right attitude for practice, while you're here, the right attitude will allow you to accept, to acknowledge, and observe whatever's happening, whatever's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, in a relaxed and alert way. Well, you know, the first days are the hardest days because we don't have right attitude. We come with these expectations of, I want it to be like this, I don't want it to be like that. And when we meet pain and frustration and the heat and discomfort of the body and the tiredness, the restlessness, it's not what we expect, so we get irritated, we get angry, we don't want, we don't want that experience, we want the experience like we had on the last day of our last retreat, not the first day of this retreat. You know, so we, we get frustrated and we get disappointed and we struggle and we give up and we got some doubt. Wrong attitudes. All wrong attitudes. So, what are we going to do about that? Well, the Noble Eightfold Path gives us a clue. As I said, it's the fourth noble truth that the Buddha offered. And in this uh, Noble Eightfold Path, there's this wisdom section, the, the, two, the two qualities or the two factors of wisdom. Right view, which I'm talking about a little bit, but not so much, and right thought which I'm going to talk about a lot, which is really how we think about practice. Right thought is, what, how, what is the thinking that's going on in our mind as we, as we come here, as we experience this, as we try to develop awareness and practice? What are these right thoughts? So the Buddha said there's three kinds of right thoughts to cultivate. Thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of renunciation, and thoughts of harmlessness. Well, I don't want to encourage us to do just a lot of thinking about goodwill, uh, harmlessness, and renunciation. But I want to point to the qualities of mind which um, display or exhibit those qualities. Because these are the very essence of having a right attitude, a skillful attitude, an attitude of wholesomeness towards your practice. 
So goodwill is loving kindness, isn't it? Now, we're not going to be teaching loving kindness here. We're not teaching metta. Many of you know that, and you know the phrases, and you know the sequence of doing a benefa- oneself a benefactor, and uh, the whole sequence of individuals and all beings and all planes of existence. And, and it's good to know how to do that. It's really beneficial to have a very loving heart. But what I'm going to point to and encourage you to recognize is the qualities of loving kindness in your attitude towards practice. Now, if I asked you, what are the what, what are the qualities of loving kindness? You know, we know love, but what what are the elements of uh, love? Being open to, allowing, interested, willing to be with it, be there, to acknowledge someone, to appreciate, to care for to be sensitive to. Okay, now if you'd been watching me, I mean some of you are, you would see what uh, attitude of mind I'm talking about. Being open, allowing, interested, curious, acknowledging, appreciative, caring, patient, willing. You see how open the mind is? You see how expansive the mind is, how willing to be with any experience the mind is. These are the qualities of the right attitude, skillful attitude. To bring these qualities, the elements of loving kindness, to every moment of our practice. Breathing in, it's like this. Breathing out, it's like this. Feeling pain, it's like this. Being bored, it's like this. I'm interested. Okay. So, when we recognize that the elements of loving-kindness are the very elements of right attitude, or skillful attitude. When I say right attitude, you know the Buddha said, right view, right thought, right mindfulness, right energy, right this, right that, right, right, right. But really what he's pointing to is not right in some metaphysical, huge, you know, philosophical, absolutely correct way. He's talking about right being, oh, this is the right way to suffer less. <laughs> if you have these kind of thoughts, these kind of views, these kind of effort, these kind of mindfulness, then it's right, meaning it's right in that it'll lead to the end of suffering or it'll cause you to suffer less. Wrong effort, wrong understanding, wrong thoughts lead you to suffer more. That's the distinction between right and unskillful or skillful and unskillful. So when I say right thought, I mean the kinds of thinking, the kinds of thought, the kinds of mm, energy of the mind, of the heart, that leads you to being open, allowing, willing, accepting, acknowledging, whatever it is, as as, uh, Utejaniya says, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. Now when it's pleasant, what do we do? We go, pleasant? Yeah! You know, and we gra- we kind of fall into it. We're willing to get totally absorbed in pleasant experience. Just like, let me have more of it. It's like all good addicts and obsessives and compulsives. Okay. But what he's saying is, no, no, no. Even with pleasant experience, just allow it, open, receive it, let it be there, care for it, be willing to acknowledge it. Don't try to get it or consume it or fall into it, get absorbed in it. On the other hand, when unpleasant experience arises, whether it's in the body or the mind or 
in the environment, what do we do? <laughs> you know, we, we kind of put up our hands and crunch our shoulders and squeeze our gut together and just kind of kind of keep it out. You know, it's like, I, I don't really want to... And you can see from my facial expression that this is not open and allowing and willing and <laughs> acknowledging, right? But that's, that's what we do. That's what aversion does to our mind. And so it, aversion is, of course, not a skillful attitude of mind. Just like desire or grasping is not a skillful attitude of mind. So even if, the pleasant, even if you do happen upon a pleasant experience in the first few days of the retreat, you know, be careful. Don't to just get lost in it. And when you deal or when you recognize or when you experience inevitably the unpleasant experiences in the first few days of the retreat, physical, mental, emotional, bear with it as best you can with this attitude of like, okay, let me feel it. Let me just acknowledge it. Let me just be patient with it. Let me just care for it the way it is. I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm not trying. Let me just be interested in this. You know, we've all experienced a lot of pain, right? We've all experienced sleepiness today. We've probably all experienced discomfort in the sitting posture today because it's just not something that we do all the time. And so what do we do when we feel this unpleasantness? Can we be interested in it? Can we say, wow, what can I learn about this? What can I actually know? What can I, what can I learn about my experience of pain in the body? What can I learn about this experience of sleepiness in the mind? Rather than, I gotta get rid of this so I can practice, which is kind of, I gotta get rid of this so I can practice. That's not a very <laughs> open allowing attitude of mind. We get it, we fall into it, but that's just habit. It's our habit to react to unpleasantness with eh, close down, or it's our habit to kind of fall in and get stuck in pleasant experiences like a fly into honey. Okay, can we find the middle way? Can we find this way of being patient with what arises, but persevering in our willingness and openness to experience fully with care, lovingly, if you want to use that word? That's the work. That's, that's the goodwill part of uh, right thought or right attitude of mind. The second of is, is renunciation, the second kind of right thoughts that the Buddha pointed to or spoke about. And what that means is renunciation is, is about letting go. So if you have any expectations of how it should be, let that go. As much as possible, can you come to practice without expectation? Well, why did I come to the retreat? You might say, hello, I saw this, this retreat was advertised, you know, uh, I don't know, whenever they put it up, a year ago. And uh, I, I, read the, uh, I read the title and said, yeah, okay, this looks like something I want to do. Yeah, I want to do that. I want to go to a retreat. You know, you go to a retreat at IMS, it's going to be nine days with three teachers that you know or maybe you don't know, and you know what it's like at IMS. It's so nice, it's calm, it's peaceful, it's good food, it's quiet. Wow, you just sit down, you bliss out. I mean, that's, hey, I could use nine days of that anytime. You know, that, that's, that's kind of the mistaken belief that gets us here. And then what happens? Not that, right? 
So we come here and it's like, oh, this is other than calm, comfort, peace, bliss, right? So we, we may, maybe we had some expectations when we came. And if you have expectations that don't get met, well, then you experience disappointment. So maybe you had some disappointment today. If some of your expectations did get met, then you get stuck in pride. Okay, so either way, you know, expectations are extra. You don't need them. Okay? But it's hard to even recognize that we have these expectations. Isn't it? We come there, we don't even see them. But once we, once we struggle and we get frustrated and we get disappointed, then we know. We can be sure. Oh, we had some expectations that we didn't know, didn't know about, didn't see, didn't know ourselves, weren't awake to what's actually going on in our own heart and mind. Okay, so no expectations or practicing without expectations or having an attitude without expectations. We don't even know that we have these expectations. <laughs> How are we going to practice without them? Well, when you see them, when you see that you're leaning into experience with some apprehension or some kind of hopeful attitude of mind, let that go. Or some grasping idea of mind. Or maybe some anticipations like, I know what it's like if I sit, if I can just sit there long enough, it's going to be like this. You know, we get this little hopeful anticipation. Yeah. (laughs) Wrong attitude. It may not, what you anticipate may never come. (laughs) Oh, then what? Okay, so expectation, anticipation, uh, disappointment, not, not indulging, being relaxed without struggling to get or to get away from anything. Well, his side rotation is that he says, you know, yogis come to retreats often uh, expecting good experiences rather than being willing to work with the tormented mind. So did you come here knowing that for nine days you're going to work with the tormented, obsessive mind? Is that why you came? I hope so, because that's, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, I hate to break the news to you on day one, but that's, that's, what's going to, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. There's going to be some dealing with this tormented mind. Because that's, that's the only way we can wake up, is to see things, this is the way it is. We have these beliefs, we have these expectations, we have these, you know, we embellish our life with all sorts of glitter, you know, and uh, really when we get to look at it, it's just ordinary dirt, just mundane, just ordinary stuff, you know, and, and really, you know, I don't know who said, but it, it's, 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 someone has said, and I think it's really appropriate, that this practice and, and the Dharma and insight is, is uh, like advanced common sense, you know, common sense is hard enough. You know, you can see that, how, how lack of, how much, what the lack of common sense is like. Just read the newspaper. So, you know, common sense is rare. But advanced common sense, that's even rarer. Here we are, trying to discover, trying to awaken to advanced common sense. Okay. So then, <sighs> goodwill, renunciation, and then harmlessness. Harmlessness is the third uh, quality, uh, the third arena of skillful thought, right attitude of mind. Now, we're not here harming ourselves and we're not here, here harming anyone else. But if our thoughts about our experience are not accepting, not allowing, then what are we doing? 
We're saying, I don't like this experience of this body. I don't like this experience of this mind. And we push it and we struggle and we try to squeeze it and we focus it. We do this, we do We do anything to change it to what we want. All the while we're exerting some pressure on ourselves that is harmful. Squeezing ourselves into some way that we hope to be, think we should be, would like to be, whatever, instead of just allowing ourselves to be the way we are. So this harm, this harmfulness or harmlessness is learning how to endure. You know, sometimes people say, you know, when I sit for a long time, the body gets really painful. It does. I mean, it does for all of us. If you sit for 20 minutes and you just really pay attention, <laughs> the body will let you know it's... Its nature is to be uncomfortable, right? But some people would say, well, that's like, if I keep sitting, I'm just harming myself. On the contrary, on the contrary. When we can learn to endure, and I don't mean just grit your teeth and endure it, but I mean learn to endure the mind that is uncomfortable with the way the body is, uh, then we can we can learn something about ourselves that is, less harming than we imagine. But it takes a willingness to uh, endure uh, sometimes some unpleasantness. This isn't the harm I'm talking about. I'm talking about the harm that occurs in the mind. The judgments that we have of ourselves. Anybody get caught in self-judgment today that they'd rather not have? Why do we do that? Who are we helping when we judge ourselves so harshly? Who are we be, being kind to? Why is that necessary? We, I, I, it's fair to say we all do that, right? At some time, at some point. We judge ourselves mercilessly, har- more harshly than others will judge us, in case you haven't noticed. Why do we do that? How can that help us in our practice? It doesn't help us in our practice. It is more like undermining, defeating, you know, putting you know, obstacles in our own way when we do that. It's a habit of mind. We, un- we, we have to understand that. It's a habit. It's a well-developed habit. It's so unconscious it happens we don't even notice it. We just live with it. This nagging voice in the back of our mind that just kind of always got something to say about us. Whew. Well, just to kind of swat it out of the way, just kind of nuke it, isn't any better, isn't being any nicer. But somehow we have to, to be willing to allow this voice, this, this, this judgment to come into view openly, receive it, hear it, feel it, allow it, acknowledge it. I didn't say to absorb yourself in it but to learn from it. What is this voice saying? How, do you, how does it feel? What is the nature of this self-critical voice? This is what we learn as we pay attention to moment-to-moment, ordinary, human life experience. And that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing here. So I've been talking about right attitude in practice. It's such an important 
element of how we practice here. You know, we know, we know, awareness is about, you know, remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And you can turn your attention to the breath at the belly or the breath at the nostrils, and you can focus, and you can, you know, eventually begin to recognize with a little more continuity what's going on. But how are you being mindful? How are you being aware? This is the arena of right attitude of mind. So the right attitude is very important. How we're practicing, the energy with which we're practicing. And if we're practicing with the striving, driving, critical, skeptical, doubtful, apprehensive, uh, kind of lackadaisical attitudes of mind, we're not going to see the truth. We're not going to see the way things are. In fact, we're not going to see much at all because those attitudes of mind get in the way of just actually being aware. So we want to check our attitude of mind frequently. Now, I have recently <coughs> came up with a, uh, a new technique. I know you've all have many techniques and, you know, techniques for dealing with everything. You know, sleepiness and, you know, pain in the body and hunger and everything else. We, you, if you practice long enough and you go to enough retreats, you'll get all kinds of techniques for dealing with anything. Well, I have a new technique for how to recognize your attitude of mind in practice. Okay? And I fair, it's fair to say none of you have ever heard this technique before. Okay? You're going to learn something new tonight. Okay. Now, you know what I'm talking about, the attitude of mind, right? So when we get you know, when we get caught in a striving attitude of mind. Yeah, this is a visual instruction. You have to look at my face to see this. So when you get caught in a striving attitude of mind, it's like this. You're practicing like this. <laughs> right? Right? You can see that attitude of mind right there? Okay? Or when you get a skeptical attitude of mind, you're going, uh, I don't know. Breathing in? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Breathing out? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Or, you know, we're a little bit, like, hesitant, like, uh, breathing in, yes. Or maybe a little, a little anxious, <laughs> breathing in, <laughs> breathing in, <laughs> or doubt, like, oh, what am I supposed to be doing? Uh, I don't know, uh, right? Or, here's, here's, the, here's the other attitude, it's like, I've already got enlightened, <laughs> you know? And we all have variations of these uh, attitudes of mind, right? Do you know what your attitudes of mind were today? Okay, here's how you can find out. Take a selfie. <laughs> turn it into an emoji. And you'll know. Right? Every time you think of it, you want to know what your attitude of mind is? Take a selfie. Turn it into an emoji. That's your attitude of mind. Right? It works. And it's important to check frequently because it will reveal... You may be practicing and you may be doing your best, you may be struggling, you may be doing whatever, but how you're doing your practice, how you're practicing awareness is important. This is reflected in your attitude of mind, which is always written on your face. Okay? I was telling... I was in uh, Spirit Rock oh, a month or so ago, and I was doing a group, and I've, this, this idea just popped into my mind. I said, 
yeah, just take a selfie and turn it into an emoji and then you'll know. And there was one elderly woman in the, in the, in the, in the group and she says, what's an emoji? <laughs> you know? And I said, oh, wait, wait, at, at the end of the group, I'll tell you. So I, I got my phone and brought up and I showed her all the emojis and she said, oh my God, look at those, all of them. She doesn't use a computer that much. So she was really excited to get back on her computer at the library so she could <laughs> play with these emojis. But we don't have to go to the computer at the library. And you don't really have to have your camera to take, in a, take a selfie. You can do it in your own mind. But it'll be helpful to uh, expose uh, how it is you're practicing. And when you find that, you're, uh, that your emoji is less than open, allowing, or other than open, allowing, interested, willing, acknowledging, appreciative, caring, patient, right? You see what that looks like? It's like, wow, okay, it's like this, open, allowing, willing, appreciative. Okay. If it's other than that, just recognizing that it's other than that will be good enough. But you have to recognize it. That was page one. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) There'll be other nights. Okay. So let me just uh, end with a a brief reminder from Saito Utejaniya when he says, Vipassana practice or insight practice always steps back to see things more clearly, whereas concentration practice always dives in and gets absorbed in the object. Stepping back and watching allows understanding to arise. Insight practice leads to wisdom. So when we step back and we take in the whole picture, how we're practicing, what we're aware of, and the fact of awareness, understanding arises. Okay. So let's just sit for a moment and let these words settle into the heart. Right attitude allows you to accept, acknowledge, and observe whatever's happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, in a relaxed and alert way. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. I hope that will be helpful. There's a half hour for more awareness practice. <laughs> uh, we call it practice because it's, it's, it, it takes practice. <clears throat> and then at nine o'clock we'll have our last uh, group sitting of the day. And I invite you to come back. I know you probably had enough already of, for today, but Uh, just extend your day a little bit and it'll be a short sitting and I'll share some reflections on the value of the work that we've been doing today. 
But in the meantime, I have this little pamphlet here called, What is the Right Attitude for Meditation? And there are 23 points of right attitude for meditation. That is Saito Tejaniya's main teaching. And there will be copies for each one of you to have one of these little pocket reminders. 23 right attitudes. I'll put them on the table under the bulletin board. They're a gift of yours from other students of Saito Tejaniya. Okay? Help yourself to one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.